Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. I am Amy Lively, and this is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, culture, and politics of the 70s. In this episode, I look at how the lack of African-American representation on television led to the creation of Soul Train and what Soul Train meant for America in the 70s. First, though, a quick thank you to all of the loyal listeners of the podcast and a sincere welcome to all of the new listeners. This is the one-year anniversary of For the Record, the 70s, which started as one woman and a microphone and a love for the 70s, for better or worse. It is still one woman and a microphone and a love for the 70s, but now I have YouTube, which makes it all the better. According to the Library of Congress, only 9% of American households had a television in 1950. By 1960, that number had grown to 90%. If you're curious, today, just shy of 96 of American households have a TV. Still, throughout the 60s, African Americans on TV shows doing something other than being a servant or a criminal were few and far between. A couple that come to mind are Julia, a 1968 sitcom on NBC, which starred Diane Carroll. She played a single mother and a nurse, which was definitely new territory for TV because she lived in a nice house in the suburbs and had a professional degree. Another person that comes to mind is, of course, Bill Cosby. He was on I Spy, which was also an NBC show, and that was on from 1965 through 1968. Cosby and Robert Culp played these uh, Pentagon spies who masqueraded as two tennis players who would go from place to place playing tennis matches for money. You also did see African Americans on public affairs news shows in the late 60s. Those are honestly the shows that very few people watch because they're on really early on Sunday morning um, and the reception was often bad. Those shows were significant and they talked about important civil rights issues, but the audience was generally pretty small. One of the people who could be found on local public access TV in the late 60s was a former Chicago traffic cop named Don Cornelius. Cornelius pulled over a radio executive one day in the 60s, and when the guy heard Don speak, he said, hey, you have a voice for radio. Don's days in law enforcement were limited after that. In 1967, he took a job at WCIU-TV in Chicago. In 1969, he hosted a public affairs show called A Black's View of the News. Here's a clip of Don on that show taking a call from a viewer who uh, is asked a question on who she thinks is the most effective black leader at that time. Follow him. Some may feel that we don't need any leader at all. And if that's your feeling, we'd like to hear about that also. We're going to take our first call and find out just what the story is. Hello? Yes. Yes, do you have an opinion as to uh, who our most effective and uh, relevant black leader is? Yes, Jesse Jackson. Why do you feel Jesse Jackson is our most effective leader? Well, in case you didn't hear her answer, she said Jesse Jackson. I would have loved to have heard why she thought Jesse Jackson, but we didn't get that part of the audio. In 1967, Jesse Jackson was made the director of the Chicago branch of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, 
You might recall that the first president of this organization was Martin Luther King Jr., who would be assassinated in April 1968, and Jesse Jackson was right there with him when that occurred. Now, as a member of the broadcasting community and as a black man, Cornelius was concerned about the fact that television news about black people was generally very negative. For many people, this was their only exposure to African Americans. If they were not framed through the lens of the civil rights movement like they were in the 1960s, they were framed as a problem that needed to be dealt with. Cornelius wanted to make a TV show that presented African Americans in a positive way for both white and black audiences. He had a specific idea of what he wanted to do, too. In his own words, he said he wanted to create a black bandstand. By bandstand, of course, he meant American bandstand. Now remember that in the 1970s, this is pre-MTV. The big three for showcasing, showcasing bands and singers on TV were Soul Train, American Bandstand, and the Midnight Special. American Bandstand came first, starting in 1952, and it didn't end until 1989. I will do a show on Bandstand later on down the line, but for now, keep this in mind. Bandstand was all white for the first few years of the show, despite what Dick Clark claimed about integrating the show much earlier than he actually did. Matt Delmont wrote a book that was published in 2012 called The Nicest Kids in Town that shows evidence that Bandstand did not integrate until it moved to Los Angeles in 1964. According to Delmont, the issue with integration in Philadelphia where Bandstand began was that there was a lot of uh, concern about putting interracial dancing on television. Despite this, Bandstand was the model for, for Cornelius. He wanted to showcase African-American kids dancing to music made by African-Americans. So the show debuted on August 17, 1970 on Channel 26 in Chicago. I would love to play a clip. But the shows were not taped. We have nothing but memories of the early shows of Soul Train. Because it was local, Cornelius had to call on some local talent to be on the episodes in the first year. Given that this was Chicago, he did have a pretty good pool of talent to call on, though. The very first episode of Soul Train featured this lineup of so-called local talent. He had on The Emotions, who hit it big in 1977 with The Best of My Love. He had Jerry Butler, a Chicago blues legend who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991, and one of the best soul bands of the 1970s, the Shy Lights. The Shy Lights had 11, count them, 11 top 10 hits on the R&B soul charts between 1969 and 1974. They had hits such as Have You Seen Her, uh, Write a Letter to Myself, and this one from 1972.
which was released as a single in March 1972. The Shy Lights performed it on Soul Train on March 18th, 1972, and it went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in May 1972. It also went to number one on the Billboard R&B chart later that summer. I have a feeling that DJs, radio DJs, got requests for that song all summer long. Other local talent included the Staples singers. B.B. King was living in Chicago at the time. He was on the show. And a group from Ohio called the OJs were on in the first year and many times after that. The OJs were not uh, big stars, um, just as Soul Train was starting out. In fact, the group almost broke up until they got connected with Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, the creators of what was called the Philadelphia Sound. Um, Think lots of strings, a driving bass, a big, lush sound. Um, Also think lots of hits in a redefining of soul music, too. As many times as the OJs saved Cornelius by appearing on the show when he needed someone, giving them what would become a national stage certainly also helped the OJs, too. In 1972, the first year that Soul Train was broadcast out of Hollywood instead of Chicago, the OJs performed one of the singles from their breakthrough album, the title track to Backstabbers. for a while there you're welcome because i was singing you don't want to hear that that went to number three on the billboard hot 100 in october 1972 and number one on the r&b chart their first and only number one hit came from that album too that was love train but you get a much better sense of the philadelphia sound i think with backstabbers and truth be told i like it better than love train speaking of the philadelphia sound and gamble and huff let's talk Soul Train theme song. This was the original. Mm-hmm. 
Hot Potato by Curtis, uh, pardon me, King Curtis in the Rim Shots. However, as Soul Train became a nationally syndicated show based out of Hollywood, and it had this uh, colorful new set and was attracting more stars, Don wanted a new theme song. So he called up Gamble and Huff and said, write me a theme song, but I don't want the name Soul Train in the song or in the title. Don was trying to protect the brand. So Gamble and Huff came up with this. that song is the sound of philadelphia that song went to number one so here is the sound of philadelphia written by the giants of soul music going to number one on the billboard charts and it isn't called soul train or even the soul train theme song don what were you thinking well he did know he knew later later he said and i quote that was the dumbest move i ever made yeah Now, as great as the music was on Soul Train in the 70s, there is really no denying that the stars of the show were the dancers. Unpaid, but never unappreciated. In the Chicago days, young people lined up outside of the Chicago Board of Trade building, which Cornelius pointed out was kind of ironic. Here they are, quite literally in the shadow of wealth, trying to get on a show that is being made by and largely for African Americans who have had billions of dollars of wealth collectively stolen from them because of 300 years of oppression and discrimination. Everybody, and I mean everybody, knows what the Soul Train dance line is. Even if you have never seen the show, and I think it is fair to say that a lot of white folks have never watched a show or a whole episode of the show, they've probably seen a clip of the dance line. Check out the show notes on FTR70.com for some Soul Train dance line video, including video of Don making his way down the dance line with former Supreme Mary Wilson. However, Don did not like the dancing that much when the show moved to Hollywood. The Los Angeles dancers were just too outrageous for Don. Kids were doing the splits in their high platform shoes and guys were flinging girls in the air. He flat out said they can't dance, but the audiences loved it, and, well, that helped Don grow to love them, too, or tolerate them. Considering how important the dancers were to the show, you might question the fact that they were unpaid, but the fact is that the money was always an issue for Soul Train. It was never not a struggle to attract advertisers to the show. The commercials for products like Afrosheen, that were marketed directly to African-Americans are part of the show's legacy. Money issues was also a primary reason that many of the performances were lip-synced. It just cost too much money to pay bands to perform live. 
That put Don in a really tough spot when in 1975, Barry White wanted to bring his entire 40-piece Love Unlimited Orchestra to play Love's theme, a 40-piece orchestra on the Soul Train set. Don did not want to do that, but what could he do? I mean, it was, it was Barry White. iconic live performances on Soul Train in the 70s has to be from Al Green. With a broken right arm in a sling and his left hand clutching a rose, the Reverend gave us this performance of Here I Am in 1974. And let's get it together real good one more time now, gang, for the mighty Al Green. Al Green live on Soul Train in 1974. And just to clarify, the Love's theme clip that I just played, of course, that was not live. You probably figured that out, but I thought I should say so. It is a testament to the greatness of the music that was showcased in the 70s edition of Soul Train that it really didn't matter that much if the music was live or lip-synced. Marvin Gaye admitted on air that he didn't even do a very good job at lip-syncing his songs. But I don't think that the young people who were there to dance to his music and breathe the air that Marvin Gaye breathed cared that much. Did it matter that the Jackson 5 lip-synced to Dancing Machine when you could watch Michael do the robot? Did it matter that the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, lip-synced to this in 1973? <laughs>
the Aretha Franklin lip sync to this. No, it didn't matter. Rocksteady, written and performed by the Queen of Soul, released on the Young, Gifted, and Black album in 1971. Go to the show notes at ftr70.com for evidence that it did not matter that she lip synced. There was still a lot of skepticism, though, in the early 70s about whether airtime should be devoted to a TV show targeting black viewers. An article from August 4, 1973, was published in the Pittsburgh Courier, an African-American newspaper. The writer, Greg Mims, detailed how a group called Bring Soul Train to Pittsburgh was trying to convince Pittsburgh TV stations to put Soul Train on the air. That group included Connie Hawkins, who was a star basketball player, most notably for the Phoenix Suns. Still, it was mostly a citizens group that was headed by Ruth McLean, who addressed the concern about Soul Train being a, quote, black show like this. That shouldn't be a problem. I watch and enjoy Johnny Carson. True, I can't relate culturally to many of his guests, but I still enjoy them. She also addressed the skepticism that some black people had about the show being on a time at a time when there were problems with uh, school busing and inner city poverty and ongoing job and wage discrimination. She said it is okay to sing and dance even when things need to change. McLean conceded that it was not a intellectual show, as she called it, but that its very existence made it political. There is something to be said for that, for merely existing being a political statement. But there were times uh, when there was more than dancing and singing happening on Soul Train. In 1974, Al Sharpton, then just 19 years old, appeared on the show to present none other than James Brown with a black record rather than a gold record for his single Payback. Here's a little bit of that interview. Uh, we have a young man in the studio who I, I think is an astounding young brother because of his youth. He's only 19 years old and he's accomplished a lot and he's here to make a presentation to James Brown and we'd like to welcome him warmly. His name is Al Sharpton. How about it for Al Sharpton? Al is uh, the national director of uh, the National Youth Movement Incorporated. Right, Al? And what do we have here? Well, we come uh, to break tradition. Uh, we know that in the uh, recording industry that they give a gold record to those that achieve a million seller. But uh, we view your million seller payback as a black record because it is relevant and says many of the things that young blacks have tried to say and could not musically express in our own uh, little way. And we feel the payback is sort of like the theme song of Young Black America in 
That's James Brown from 1973, The Payback. The very existence of Soul Train was still so tenuous in 1973 that it could have all been taken away by Dick Clark. In 1973, Dick Clark tried to copy Soul Train at a minimum. According to Nelson George, who wrote a book about Soul Train called The Hippest Trip in America, Soul Train, Clark was asked by political leaders, including Jesse Jackson, to back off. After all, this was not just a show for black people. It was a show owned by a black man in Don Cornelius. Clark refused to stop the production of Soul Unlimited and the William Morris Agency, which represented Clark, sent a threatening letter to Clarence Avant. Avant is called the Black Godfather, and by the way, there's a Netflix documentary airing about him now. He is one of the most influential black entertainment executives ever, and he told ABC that if Soul Unlimited went forward, ABC was, fa was facing a boycott by African-American viewers. Clark offered money to Avant to endorse the show, and Avant refused. A DJ named Buster Jones hosted Clark's show, Soul Unlimited, and it was here and gone after three shows, partially because Jones was brutal as a host, but more because of Avant. By the mid-1970s, Don Cornelius was faced with a couple of developments that he may not have anticipated. The first is that white people wanted to be on the show. Gino Vanelli was the first white singer on Soul Train when he performed People Gotta Move in 1975. So Don said he thought that Gino Vanelli was black. In fact, a lot of people did. Uh, I don't hear it, but... I'll say my introduction to Gino Vanelli came later in the decade with I Just Want to Stop. So I knew all along that he wasn't black. But anyway, Gino Vanelli said he ended up getting a lot of African-American fans at his shows after this performance on Soul Train. Uh, Elton John and David Bowie were on Soul Train too. And in the disco era, uh, we will get some other white guys on Soul Train. But Gino Vanelli was on before both of them. And that takes me to the other thing that Cornelius could not have seen coming, and that was disco. Please review episode one of this very podcast for my testimony on why disco does not suck. Don Cornelius was not as convinced as I am that disco does not suck, uh, but there was no way that he could have Soul Train on the air and ignore disco. So he accepted it. In fact... George McRae was on to perform what is considered by many people to be the first disco hit, Rock Your Baby. Uh, many, many disco stars and hits followed, um, including Donna Summer, 
KC and the Sunshine Band, Johnny Taylor, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, I could go on. There was even a disco ball on for one season in 1977. It replaced the sign. Fortunately, as big of a disco fan as I am, we don't want to be messing with the Soul Train sign. So fortunately, that was just one year. This is what Don said about disco. He said, we played the best black records we could find. If you want to call it disco, fine. In fact, Don helped create Shalimar, which did have session singers, and he replaced them with two of his most popular dancers, Jeffrey Daniels and Jody Watley. This was their big hit from 1979. Second time around was a top 10 hit in 1979, but disco was on its last legs then. Hip-hop and rap were about to explode. Here's a bit of Curtis Blow performing the breaks in 1980. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Because I'm Curtis Blow, and I want you to know that these are the breaks. on the car, breaks to make you a superstar, breaks to win and breaks to lose, but these here breaks rock your shoes, and these are the breaks, break it up, break it up, break it up. interviewed Curtis, he told him on air that the song did not make sense to, quote, old guys like me. And Curtis seemed kind of devastated by that. Don kept hosting until 1993, but things were changing and they would keep changing with the introduction of MTV and VH1. You know, even if the clout of Soul Train dissipated after the 70s, its legacy was secure. It offered something that was much more than entertainment, and certainly it was entertaining. Uh, Lawrence Ralph, who is an associate professor of sociology at Harvard, 
wrote an essay about Don Cornelius after he died in 2012, which you can find in my show notes. Professor Ralph said this about Soul Train. The show helped sketch a portrait of black life that was radically ordinary. That was it. At its essence, it really was the black bandstand. It was kids dancing to music. For Don, as Professor Ralph put it, he wanted to broadcast an image that betrayed his love for his race. We were all just lucky that we got to go along for the ride. Okay, that is all for this episode of For the Record the 70s. You can help the show by showing your love, by telling somebody about the show, leaving a nice review wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also contribute as little as $1 a month to help pay the bills around here. Visit FTR70.com to find out more about that. Thanks, everybody. 